TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. I think about work a lot. That's why I wanted to tell you about Canva Docs, which will help you expertly craft your work communications. They have an AI text generator built in called MagicWrite, powered by OpenAI. You can generate any text you want. Job descriptions, marketing plans, sales proposals. Just start with a prompt, and you'll have a draft in seconds. Tweak your draft, and you're done. Try Canva Docs with an AI text generator built in at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Got a business problem? There's a TED Talk for that. Stay updated on everything business on TED Business, a podcast hosted by Columbia Business School professor Modupe Akinola. Every week, she'll introduce you to leaders with unique insights on work, answering questions like, how do four-day work weeks work? Do will a machine ever take my job? Get some surprising answers on TED Business wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. It's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guest today is Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's a psychologist and neuroscientist at Northeastern University and Harvard Medical School, and she's revolutionized our understanding of emotions. She's been a Guggenheim Fellow and won the American Psychological Association Award for Scientific Contribution. Along with being a brilliant researcher, Lisa is a gifted communicator. She's the author of the books Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and How Emotions Are Made, which was also the subject of her popular TED Talk. Get ready to rethink your view of what emotions are and how you manage them. Well, hey, Lisa. Hey, Adam. I've been reading your work on emotion for a long time, and it's upended a lot of my assumptions and beliefs, which is always fun. You know, if I wasn't a scientist, I'm not sure I would believe what I'm saying either. But I have the data right in front of me most of the time. So it is pretty shocking sometimes how the world can surprise you. You look at emotions really differently from other people. And I want to I want to ask you to unpack how you do that but but let me actually start with your personal experience because Tell me a little bit about how you deal with emotions. You know, I think we all have the experience of emotions being triggered 
and kind of hijacking us. And it feels that way. It just so much feels that way. It even feels that way to me. Um, but that's really not what's happening under the hood. And so I can actually take the science and actually use it. And for me, like a really good example was right before I was about to give my TED talk. When there's a lot of uncertainty, there's an increase in chemicals that make your heart race and make you sweat and your palms sweat, your uh, blood pressure goes up. And we make sense of those sensations as anxiety, but they don't have to be anxiety. You can make sense of them in, in many different ways. And you're not just relabeling things. You're actually making meaning out of those signals so that you experience, authentically experience a different emotion. And so right before I was going on to the TED stage, there were, I think, about a thousand people outside. And I had to memorize my whole spiel. And I could feel my pulse in my fingertips. Like my level of arousal was so high. And I was standing back there with my eyes closed thinking, this is not anxiety. This is determination. This is not anxiety. This is determination. It's <laughs> determination. Get your butterflies flying in formation. And so when I walked out on that stage, I was prepared, you know, I'm because when you're, when you have very high arousal, it's usually because your brain is preparing you to do something really hard or to learn um, something that you don't know to reduce uncertainty. And it can feel really uncomfortable, but you don't necessarily want to get rid of it. What you want to do is experience it differently. That's so interesting. I was just telling our daughter, uh, she was nervous for a performance. And I said, you know, you, when you feel anxious, it, it may be a sign that you care. Oh, for sure. When your brain is attempting to learn something that you don't know because it's predicting that it will be important in the future, you have this massive increase in arousal, which people usually experience as anxiety. The difference is that what's happening under the hood is not a threat response. It's a learning response. Arousal usually means there's uncertainty and the brain cares about that uncertainty and is going to try to reduce it. Tell me about getting your butterflies in formation. What does that mean? Yeah, so this is one of the best ways to make meaning I've ever heard. When my daughter was 12 years old, she was a tiny thing. She was barely five feet tall, and she was testing for her black belt in karate with these hulking adolescent boys who were like at least a foot taller than her, and she was going to have to spar with them. And her sensei, who was a 10th degree black belt, so this guy could break a board by looking at it, you know, saunters up to my daughter and says to her, not don't be scared, not, you know, not, no, no placating like you can do it, little girl. He just looks at her and he goes, get your butterflies flying in formation. And I thought, oh my God, that's like the best thing I've ever heard. That is such a great recategorization. So you experience your arousal as something other than anxiety. There's this wonderful line of research by this scientist named Jeremy Jameson, who trains people to recategorize their anxiety as determination so that they will stop feeling test anxiety. Sometimes it's called reappraisal, but really what you're doing is you're taking sensations and you're making meaning of them differently. You're using a different set of concepts or categories to make sense of those sensations. You're creating a different reality out of those sensations. And as a consequence, you can act differently and your outcomes are, are, are different. 
You have some really interesting ways of reappraising. So tell me about how you sometimes recategorize your emotions. You know, our brains are always guessing at the meaning of the sensory information coming from our bodies. And um, for people who live in the West, and particularly in the U.S., our automatic guess at high arousal is anxiety. If you experience that as anxiety, that's a recipe for one action, like to withdraw, for example. And so a really good example for me was right before the pandemic uh, was announced, I was in New Zealand. My daughter was in college at that time. She was flying over to meet me as she often would do during spring break. No one had made the decision yet. And so I called my husband, her dad. Really what I needed to do was to gather as much information, forage for information stay curious. And so I explained to him, well, I'm feeling how I feel is very high arousal and it's very unpleasant. And my husband who knows me, I mean, we've been married for almost 30 years, didn't say, oh, you're anxious. (laughs) He was like, "What, (laughs) what kind of information would reduce that uncomfortable arousal? And when people hear me talk about this, usually their eyes roll back in their head. They're like, oh my God, she's such an ivory tower academic. But actually deconstructing anxiety into its more basic ingredients can be very, very useful because it lets you choose. It gives you more freedom to be curious about what might be causing that arousal. Think about the last time you've gone to the dentist and you get your teeth fixed, like maybe a tooth is pulled or, you know, you have a crown or you have a filling. What do you do when there's something new in your mouth that you've never, that has never been there before and it feels weird? I wince. After the pain is gone, don't you keep probing at it with your tongue? Like, uh, oh you know, yeah, like you, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what your brain is doing is it's foraging for information And eventually what will happen is that your brain will decide that there's nothing meaningful there. There's no meaningful consequence to that sensory signal, so it'll ignore it. One of the things our brains can do is ignore the sensory consequences of our own movements. When you walk, you don't normally feel your feet hitting the ground in any kind of substantial way. Right now, you're not experiencing something directly that you will as soon as I say it, which is, do you feel the back of your legs against the chair bottom. Your attention wasn't on those things, but the minute I say it, it is. And the reason why your attention is not on those things all the time is that they're not really consequential for action. They don't require you to do anything. Lisa, one of the things I'm struck by when I hear you talk about emotions and when I read your work as well is you don't take your emotions that seriously. Oh, I take my emotions very seriously. I just don't take them as obligatory or necessarily given. Emotions are real, but they're real by virtue of the fact that your brain creates them. Your brain is, is a meaning maker. It's actively attempting to make meaning all the time. And one of the results of that meaning making is your whole emotional life. And so you have more control over what you feel than you think you do. For example, when I've had an interaction with someone that has made me feel embarrassed or when someone, let's say in a faculty meeting, hypothetically says something that makes me angry, any kind of emotional instance where I'm feeling something and I don't really want to be feeling it. I think to myself, this is just electrical activity in my head. (laughs) 
And you know, it completely just destroys the negative feeling, like almost instantaneously, like flipping a light switch. It's extremely liberating to be able to say, yeah, this this thing that feels like a giant cloud is actually just an electrical signal in my brain. I've been telling my students for years that part of emotional intelligence is realizing that you don't have to internalize everything that you feel. And I think you've given us a series of skills for doing that. I think the beginning of that, though, for a lot of people, requires something that you've discovered, which is emotional granularity. It feels to us like emotions happen to us, like we're basically the victims of these um, circuits that trigger and that hijack us and cause us to do and say and feel things that we would rather not. But actually, your brain is making emotions on the spot as you feel them. And you have a lot more flexibility over how that works because you can train your brain to learn different emotion words, to learn different emotion concepts, to basically become an emotion expert. And when you do that, what happens is your brain makes emotional instances that are very, very tailored to the specific situation that you're in. And that's actually really good for you. So for some people who are very low in granularity, meaning the emotions that their brain makes are very kind of general and global. So these are people who will use words like sadness and anger and fear are synonyms for feeling like crap. (laughs) They're not specific recipes, right, for action. They're kind of general. What do you do when you feel like crap? Well, who the hell knows? Because it could be a million things. In fact... When you feel unpleasant, your your mood, right? These, what we would call them simple affective feelings or mood, they're determined by many, many things which add up to an unpleasant mood. And they're not emotions. Mood is like a barometer for how well your brain is regulating your body. I think about people who say, uh, I'm upset, I feel sick, I'm stressed, as opposed to describing more specifically what the emotion is. Oh, exactly. And it's not that they're not describing the emotion more precisely. It's they're not feeling a precise emotion. They're feeling a jumble of stress or unpleasantness. Because what your brain is attempting to do is make sense of your affect, these simple feelings, in relation to what's going on around you in the world. And If you're not doing that in a very precise way, then you end up feeling this very general mood and you don't know what to do to make yourself feel differently. But when you have a very granular experience, then that goes along with very, very precise ideas about how to act, what to do next. I I was just thinking about irritation versus frustration. I would reserve frustration for being blocked from a goal. Whereas I would say I'm irritated when something is more mildly annoying, but isn't directly impeding my ability to achieve what I'm trying to achieve. That's your like summary, right? So for example, if you look at anger, for example, people, what's the theme of anger? Actually, I've been wronged. Yeah, I've been wronged. But it turns out what you find is that people can get angry for all kinds of reasons. They feel anger when they're competing and they want to win. People in sports do this, actually. They try to cultivate anger because it fuels their actions, right? Sometimes people feel angry because they feel it, it's a 
it's a, an identity booster. They feel part of a group. Sometimes people become angry as a way of indicating that they care about someone else and they're trying to solicit closeness, to signal closeness. So in real life, Anger is many things. Sometimes your blood pressure goes up, sometimes it goes down, sometimes it stays the same. It really depends on what action your brain is preparing you to do. And all of that is very situated. So another aspect of emotional granularity is being able to make flexible instances of anger or sadness or fear that don't all look the same or feel the same. You don't do the same thing. This is also an aspect of emotional granularity, which is very important, this kind of flexibility aspect. One of the things I find interesting about the evidence on granularity is that it doesn't just give you more control over your emotions. It also has implications for well-being. Tell me about that. If you're a person who's higher in granularity, so you, you know more about emotion, you have more precise emotion concepts, you wield those concepts in a much more flexible and precise way, you are less likely to abuse alcohol in stressful situations. You're less likely to resort to violence. You're more likely to find other ways of repairing relationships. This is one that totally surprised me. You're less likely to get sick from physical ailments. And if you're sick, sometimes with very serious things, like can certain types of cancers, you're, you'll get better faster. When I first started to read these findings, I was like, what is going on here? Because this isn't one study, Adam, as you know. This is like study after study after study. My initial hypothesis is this isn't so much of a cause as a signal in many cases of cognitive complexity or mental agility and flexibility that it's, it's useful to be able to recategorize all, all kinds of things. And you're tapping into that general capacity when you study emotional granularity. But some of your work had made, has made me think it's more than that. It's definitely more than that. I think a lot of psychologists would be satisfied with the explanation, well, if you're more cognitively agile and you um, can categorize more flexibly, that's all things being equal, going to give you better outcomes. I just find that in not satisfying as a scientist. I want to understand why that's the case. And the answer that I would give now, my best guess now, is the following. It requires actually knowing something about brain evolution, like why do you even have a brain? What is your brain for? And what is categorization for? Categorization is this basic thing that your brain is doing kind of all the time. It's what all brains do. It's actually what all nervous systems do. You're saying this thing, which is happening right now, is like these things in the past, and that means that I can generalize from the past and make a reasonable guess about what I should do here based on what's happened before. Why is that a good thing? It's a good thing because it reduces metabolic demand. So your brain's most important job is not thinking. It's not feeling. It's not seeing or hearing or sensing in any way. Your brain's most important job is regulating the systems of your body coordinating them in a metabolically efficient way. I know we don't experience ourselves that way. We don't experience every hug we give, every insult we bear, every emotion we have. We don't experience them as having anything to do with our metabolism and our energy regulation, but they do. And 
it's expensive to, to run a body. It's actually expensive to have a brain. Your brain is the most expensive organ that you have. And, and um, it's so strange because I paid nothing for it. Actually, it's not free, my friend. It costs you 20% of your metabolic budget to keep your brain active and healthy. So I that's, think that, that's a pretty than, high ROI, all things considered. None of us are frugal in that regard. <laughs> if you think about what your brain has to do on a regular basis, it's constantly trying to solve this uh, problem, which philosophers call an inverse problem. It, but basically the idea is sort of like this, that your brain is trapped in a dark silent box called your skull. And it's receiving sensory signals from the world through the retina of your eye, each eye and the cochlea in each ear and so on. You're receiving these sensory signals. These sensory signals are the outcomes of some set of causes or changes in the world. But your brain doesn't have access to those changes. It only has access to the consequences, to the outcomes. So something's happened. And your brain has to guess what caused that change. Because otherwise you won't know what to do next to keep, you, to keep yourself alive and, and well. And when you're very granular, your brain can guess really, really, really precisely and well. And when you're very low in granularity, it overgeneralizes too much. Because if you're just using unpleasantness like When's the last time I felt unpleasantness? If you're in my case, it could be many hundreds or thousands of times <laughs> throughout a lifetime. So which one is the right one? Well, if your brain can't choose, then it's just more metabolically taxing. So the most expensive things that your brain can do are move your body, like drag yourself out of bed in the morning, exercise, whatever, learn something new, or have to live in uncertainty over a long period of time. And when you can make a very precise guess, meaning you're, you're very granular, then you're, you're functioning in a very metabolically efficient way. And that's really the arbiter of health and illness. It's the ar arbiter of wellness. I'm not reducing everything to metabolism, but I'm saying it's like this hidden factor that a lot of people are unaware of, a lot of even physicians and therapists are unaware of. Like you wrote this beautiful piece for the New York Times on languishing, I believe. And when I read that, I was like, yeah, people are languishing, not because of fight and flight, not because their circuits are overwrought, because there are no circuits for that specifically, because they're exhausted by the uncertainty of everything. Like, there's just too much uncertainty that they're having to deal with. And it's, it's like bankrupting their body budget. So that's the metaphor I use. That, what a fascinating interpretation. Yeah. I, it's like you're bankrupt. I, I never mm -hmm. looked at it that way. When, when I was reading the research on languishing and you know, trying to marry it with what so many people were, were describing from their experience, I thought it was much more the absence of momentum and purpose. But you're saying the underlying cause of that is the uncertainty that I, I can't do anything because I don't know exactly. what's going to happen. The so absence of motivation and purpose is the result, I should say, of a bankrupt body budget. In Western culture, we pathologize when people experience things physically and we don't experience them mentally. But sometimes you do want to experience things physically, right? So sometimes when you're fatigued, it's because, you know, you're running a deficit and you need to take care of yourself. That's actually, I think, one of the biggest 
things I learned on this journey is that sometimes your mood is telling you something about your physical state. It's not telling you that something is wrong in the world. It's telling you that you're doing something hard and it's expensive metabolically or that you're just depleted, you know, that your body budget is just running a deficit and you need to take care of that before you'll feel better. And I got to say this, Adam, when I'm having a body budgeting problem. Like I'm just really overworked or I'm, you know, stressed. What does stress mean? Stress is just your brain preparing your body for a big metabolic outlay. That's what stress is. <laughs> and if your brain is doing it over and over and over and over again in moments of uncertainty, you're going to drain the bank, you know? And when I have these moments, like sometimes at night after a really long, stressful day, I will feel like the world is ending. You know, I'll feel like, oh my God, you know, like it just feels to me like everything is wrong. And in those moments, I just tell myself, you are having a body budgeting issue. Go to bed, <laughs> get, take some water, have a bath, get a hug. And tomorrow it will feel like a better day. And even if there are things in the world that you want to fix, you have more energy and more motivation to do those things when you're not feeling so encumbered. Yes. Hey, Rethinking listeners. We're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. I think the, the discussion of emotional granularity is a great segue to the lightning round, if you're ready for it. Let me start with one of my favorite ways to gain granularity is to look at emotion words in other languages. Uh, so tell me, what is your favorite emotion word that we don't have in English? I don't remember the word right now, but it's a Japanese word for the concept of the unpleasantness that you feel when you get a bad haircut. <laughs> I just love <laughs> I love that. Another one that I like a lot is, um, is giggle which is, is a word for the feeling that you have when you see a baby that's so cute that you just want to pinch its cheeks, you know? <laughs> Two of my favorites. One is German Kummerspeck, I think it's pronounced, which is the extra weight that we get from emotional overeating when we're sad and is literally translated as grief bacon. <laughs> I thought that was a classic. And grief then, um, Oh, I like that. I recently came across a Finnish word that I can't pronounce. It's something like terna terna dish, which translates to bouncy cushion satisfaction. And it's like whatever couch <laughs> is nearest to you, like you, ah, like you fall on it and you, you feel relaxed. I thought that was great. Okay, next question. Have you ever invented your own emotion word that's missing from our language? In our house, we have several. One is the emotional flu. It means you feel like crap. And it feels like something's wrong with you or something's wrong in the world, but really there's just some physical imbalance. So instead of I'm depressed or, 
you know, I feel miserable. It's I have a touch of the emotional flu today. I like that because it, it suggests you're you're admitting that you don't know the cause of your unpleasant arousal. Yeah. It's also saying, give me a little extra care today. I need a little extra. I don't have so many spoons today. So <laughs> go easy on me a little bit. We Another one that we have is chiplessness. You know, the feeling, you know, you, you're not really supposed to be eating potato chips. They're not healthy for you, but they're really delicious. And then you get to the bottom of the bag and, you know, it's done. So you feel kind of regretful, but you're also kind of thankful and relieved because, you know, you're not really supposed to be eating them and you do want some more, but, you know, you shouldn't have it. It's like this very complicated kind of mix of I want more. I know I shouldn't have it. I'm kind of relieved that I don't have to show any more, you know, restraint because I don't really have any when it comes to this thing. <laughs> that is chiplessness. What is the biggest myth about emotions that's out there? That you're born with a limbic system or an emotional brain that's hardwired into your brain before birth, and that you're you're kind of at the mercy of that you know ancient animalistic part of your brain. What's the biggest thing you've rethought since becoming a neuroscientist? I, I like everyone was trained into this idea that your brain is at war with itself constantly. You've got this emotional beast brain, and you've got this rational side, and they're they're constantly at war with each other for controlling your behavior. This is how we understand brain development. It's how we understand mental health and mental illness. It's how we understand how economics works. It's the foundation of the legal system in Western civilization. And it's just not, it's a myth. That's not how your brain is structured. That's not how it works. That's not how it evolved. You don't, you can't blame your bad behavior on ancient circuits in your emotional brain. What should I blame it on then? That's a more complicated answer that I can't give to you in a lightning round. Fair. Okay. What's the question you have for me? Which emotion do you have the most trouble with in your daily life? One that maybe isn't as useful to you or that you wish you didn't have? Oh. You know, I was accused recently of regulating my emotions so efficiently that I do it automatically without realizing I'm doing it. So... In some mm. cases, I'm, I might say my problem is that I don't have enough emotion. But I, there, there, there is one that I can't quite get rid of that bothers me. And I think the emotion that gets in my way the most is anxiety. Um, and I've, I've gotten, I think, pretty good at harnessing it as defensive pessimism following the Julie Norum work and using it as a cue to prepare for something that's important and uncertain. But... What I really struggle with is anxiety in the moment. Like I, I, I had a TV interview and because it's very short and high pressure and there are a lot of viewers, I just felt a little bit jittery. And I, I actually thought to myself, this is just an electrical signal in my brain. But you know what? I still had the physiological arousal. And so it doesn't matter how many times I tell myself I'm excited or I'm determined. I don't feel like I can speak in the same relaxed tone when I'm feeling that, that I would when I'm not aroused or when I'm not feeling that intense kind of feeling of being on edge. And so I would love your guidance on what do I do in that moment? And this is the way I think the way that control works. We always think about control as changing what we're doing in the moment. I don't know that there's a lot that you can do. I think what you do is before the heat of the moment, you do some things to build that flexibility into your brain so that your brain very automatically has a bunch of choices. So what do I mean by that? Let me go back to my TED talk. How did I prepare for that talk? 
I practiced jumping up and down in my hotel room. And I practiced on the stage the day before when the workmen were there constructing the stage. So there's like hammering and drilling going on. And, you know, and I practiced out loud, standing up in my outfit, gave the talk several times with all this noise so that when I walked on stage and I was filled with arousal, I could just give the talk. Why? Because I had practiced it in the physical state that I was in. The thing about meaning making, which is important to understand, the thing about control that you have to understand is that in trying to grasp control in the moment is the hardest thing to do no matter how flexible you are. It's like a skill. For example, I use awe, a feeling of awe, as a way of giving my nervous system a break in very stressful situations. And I have to say, I didn't believe that this was possible to do. And so I did. For, for five minutes a day, I tried cultivating awe. And I started with easy things first, like the sky, the leaves, the sound <laughs> of the ocean, stuff that's awe-inspiring. It makes you feel like a speck. And if you're a speck, then your problems are diminished for a very brief time. It gives your nervous system like a moment to reset. What I think is so powerful about what you just said, it's a shift from making the sensation go away to getting better at performing while I'm feeling the sensation. Your, your advice is reminding me a little bit, I should have thought of this sooner. A few years ago, I had a conversation with Nick Walenda, the, the, the tightrope walker who walked across the Grand Canyon. And I was asking him how he trained because I just can't imagine, first of all, why anyone would want to do that. But secondly, how you get yourself ready to do yeah. that. And he said some of the most important training he did was on a, just a one-foot rope, blindfolded, having his friends literally try to push him off the rope. And I guess that was a version of simulating you know, both the extreme wind conditions that might arise, but also the intense arousal he was going to experience um, when something unexpected happened over the Grand Canyon. And you're saying we could all simulate those conditions more effectively. I am, but I'm even saying something more, I think, which is that when, when he's being knocked by his friends, he's not simulating anything. He's actually physically experiencing the consequences of movement. Sometimes simulation, technically in, in science, we use it to mean imagining or trying to invoke an experience away from its natural um, context. And I think in in... What we're talking about here is actually deliberately cultivating those experiences very directly and very, very authentically. And then you just get better at, at working with them. Because the fact is, sometimes you feel unpleasant, not because something is wrong, but because something is hard. And if you have a surge of arousal, it's probably because your brain believes that's needed. Okay, so that, that goes to one other thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up, which is the amygdala. When I was in college, I was introduced to the amygdala as the fear center that governs fight-or-flight reactions. The subsequent research I read said that's wrong. It's actually more of the threat detection center. And I wrote about it recently. You, you said, eh, that's not quite true either. And I haven't gotten an explanation of why. So what am I getting wrong about the amygdala? And can you help me rethink it? I'm so glad you asked. 
And that's something that I love about talking about science for the public is that science is progressive. It's incremental. The best available evidence suggests that something is the case and then more research is done and then we find out that was mistaken. It's just a normal part of science, right? It's not a gotcha moment. It's just how science works. And there are people who still believe that the amygdala is the center for fear, but it really isn't. And I could tell you that, you know, only 30% of all brain imaging studies, for example, show an increase in amygdala activity during fear, which is more than chance, but it's not high enough to be the center for fear. Or I could tell you that people without amygdalas can experience fear, which they can, and they can even learn fear. They can learn to be fearful of things. And then there's the problem that if I just stick your head in a scanner, Adam, and I show you images you've never seen before, we will get massive amygdala response to that. The amygdala is like a sentinel It's telling the rest of the brain that something important is happening where the brain has to marshal its energetic resources to learn something more or to learn something new. And it's involved in regulating that as well as physical movement. Those circuits are important in moments of threat but they aren't threat detection circuits per se. They have a much more basic function that's like a sentinel to tell the brain, this is something that's important to learn. So when people do their evolutionary hand-waving about how the amygdala evolved to protect us from threats in the jungle, you're saying, eh, not so much. I just don't think that that story that the amygdala is the fear center or the threat center and it has to be down-regulated by prefrontal cortex. It's a version of that myth that we have an ancient animalistic beast part of our brain, and then we've got this more rational side, and you know, one has to clamp down on the other in order for us to behave you know, rationally and appropriately. It's just a myth. It's a morality tale. It's a tale that, that you know, we've been telling ourselves since Plato. <laughs> if you look at the overarching amount of evidence, it does not support that view. Lisa, I love the way that you challenge us to rethink so many things we think we know about our emotions and our brains. And I've got a few on my list from today. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for generously asking me about it. I really appreciate it. One of the biggest implications of Lisa's work is that recognizing emotions is actually a skill for regulating them. The more granular and nuanced you get about what you're feeling, the more agency you gain to shape your experience. And when you're grappling with an unwanted emotion, it's worth remembering, this is just an electrical signal in your brain. I'm going to be using that one regularly. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quinn, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Well, you, you like me, have an inner logic bully. <laughs> I, I do indeed have that. You suffer from the, the curse, which is also one of your gifts, of being both precise and contrarian. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run 
with Brooks running shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.